When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Welcome to Noble Blood, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Menke. Listener discretion advised. Hey, this is Dana Schwartz. Thank you so much for listening to Noble Blood. Just a quick note before we begin, if you want to support the show, join the Noble family over on Patreon, where I do monthly bonus episodes, drop episode scripts, and have an exclusive seasonal sticker club. We also have merch available at dftba.com. Both of those are linked in the episode description. But honestly, as always, just thank you so much for listening. Let's get started, shall we? All throughout Kazvin, the capital of the Safavid Empire, it was rumored that Shah Tamasp I was dying. The news came as no real surprise. The Shah had been ill for more than two years, and he had come close to death several times. No, what people were talking about now was the fact that the Shah, even after those two years spent on the brink of death, still had not declared a successor. Successions are often the most vulnerable time for any government, and things in the Safavid Empire, which had a border extending past present-day Iran, were particularly fraught in the spring of 1576. Shah Tamasp had spent much of his 52-year reign quelling tribal uprisings. With his death, it seemed likely that such fighting could break out again. Even worse, in the absence of a clear endorsement from the Shah, tribal leaders in the empire had rallied behind two different candidates for their next leader, both sons of Tamasp. If Tamasp did not choose between his sons before his death, if the transition didn't run smoothly, if a strong leader didn't immediately take the throne, many feared that civil war would break out. As whispers over the Shah's condition intensified, the two candidates, Prince Haidar and Prince Ismail, rallied their respective troops. Haidar was in the palace at Kazvin alongside his dying father, while Ismail was some 300 miles away, imprisoned in Kwakwa Castle. Despite his distance, many of Ismail's supporters were also in Kazvin and the situation between his supporters and Haider's supporters grew tense and tenser throughout April 1576. On May 15th, the news that everyone had been anticipating finally came. Shah Tamasp had died the night before, and no successor had been chosen. We don't know why Tamasp never publicly declared a successor, Perhaps, having escaped death multiple times before, he mistakenly thought he would do so again. But one thing was clear. The empire now stood on a precipice. After 75 years, was the Safavid dynasty going to descend into chaos? Would a battle between two brothers 
lead to ruin for the empire? Who would emerge victorious and take the seat of the Shah? With all eyes on Haidar and Ismail, many missed that it was not the princes who were pulling the strings at the palace. It was their sister, Princess Peri Khan Khanum. It was she who held the fate of the empire in her hands. Over the next two years, she would emerge as a force to be reckoned with, a political mastermind whose decisions would shape the Safavid dynasty, but eventually lead to her own untimely, tragic death. I'm Dana Schwartz, and this is Noble Blood. To understand Princess Parikhan Hanum's rise and fall, it's important to understand the world she lived in. The Safavid dynasty originated from a group of Sufis, or Islamic mystics, who came from what is now northwestern Iran. The group became known as the Safavids after their founder, a 14th century spiritual leader named Safi al-Din. After Safi al-Din's death in 1334, Leadership of the movement passed from father to son. By the mid-15th century, the group had become more militant, intent on spreading Shia Islam through military conquest. Under Sheikh Hidar, who led the Safavids from 1460 through 1488, many members of the group adopted a tall, narrow scarlet hat with 12 sides, to commemorate the 12 Imams who are the cornerstones of Shia Islam. This led their Turkish enemies to call them Kizbash, or Redheads, a name the group soon adopted as their own. I know it gets just a little complicated here, but Kizilbash, who were in fact an assortment of different tribes, served as the military backbone of the Safavids, and their leaders were enormously influential. When Haidar was killed in 1488, the Safavids retreated somewhat, only to experience a striking resurgence under the leadership of Haidar's 13-year-old son, Ismail. Those names probably sound familiar, but this is all background, happening about a century before our brothers, Haydar and Ismail. So, let's just do that quick clarifier. Like many royal dynasties, the Safavids liked to pass down royal names. The 1400s, Haydar and his son, Ismail, are the ancestors of our Peri Khan Hanum, who had brothers, Hadar and Ismail, living during the 1500s, the siblings with the dying father who didn't name a successor. But flashback, back to their ancestors and background Ismail, is rallying thousands of Kizilbash troops in the summer of 1500 to avenge his father. After defeating the group responsible for his father, Hadar's death, Ismail continued on, acquiring enormous swatches of territory, including much of the land east of modern-day Turkey and west of modern India. By 1501, Ismail had been crowned as Shah of Iran, and the Safavid dynasty was born. The royal family was multi-ethnic and multilingual. Shahs normally took multiple consorts, often from different ethnic groups such as the Georgians, Circassians, and Pontic Greeks. The Safavid Shahs were patrons of the arts. The dynasty's artists created marvels of mosaics and mirror tiles, 
stunning illustrated manuscripts, and beautiful calligraphy. They valued education and religious piety, beauty and tradition, military prowess, and strategic thinking. So now we fast forward. It was in that environment that Peri Khan Khanum was born in August 1548. She was the second daughter of the second ruler of the Safavid dynasty, Shah Tamasp I. Pari's mother, Sultan Aga Khanum, was the second wife of the Shah. If you're wondering about the shared matrilineal last name, it's a little bit misleading. Khanum is a term that can loosely translate as princess, and so it was a royal surname shared by many royal women. During her earliest years, Peri Khan Khanum was raised under the guidance of a tutor, Khali Khan, who provided her with an excellent education. In a court that valued artistic skill and intellect, this upbringing served the princess well. Her intelligence soon caught the eye of her father, who made sure that she was trained in a range of fields, from poetry to jurisprudence. It became clear that this brilliant, clear-headed princess was her father's favorite daughter. Mahmoud Afushtayi Natanzi, a Safavid historian who lived at the same time as Peri Khan Hanum, recorded that, quote, the Shah would act according to her advice and approbation in affairs minor and major, financial and administrative. All the important affairs of the Shah, from politics and international relations to the rules and customs of monarchy, were carried out according to that wise and just princess's opinion and recommendation, and nothing was done without her knowledge and consent." End quote. She was also known as a talented poet and a passionate patron of the arts, who commissioned many works. When she was ten, she was betrothed to a cousin, Prince Badi al-Zaman, but she never traveled to his home in Sistan. It was believed that her father wanted to keep his beloved daughter close. Despite the royal family's willingness to educate its daughters and the Shah's willingness to take political advice from them, it was still taken for granted that a man would succeed Shah Tamas on the throne. By 1574, when the Shah fell seriously ill for the first time, two of Pari Khan Hanum's brothers, Haidar and Ismail, were seen as the frontrunners, each supported by different tribes within the Kizilbash. Shah Tamasp's eldest son, Muhammad Kodabanda, was blind by this point due to an illness, which in the Safavid culture disqualified him from ruling. Next in line would naturally be the second son, Ismail, but he faced a slight obstacle. He had been imprisoned since 1554 by his father for reasons that are not entirely clear perhaps because his father thought that he was disloyal, or perhaps because he was known to take male lovers. Nevertheless, Ismail had many supporters, including his sister, Peri Khan Khanum. Ismail's main opponent to the throne was his half-brother, Haidar, about whose early life not much is known. Many of Haidar's supporters did so because of his Georgian heritage via his mother. As the Shah grew sicker, Haidar and his supporters worked to ingratiate themselves with the Shah. Haidar attended to his father closely and made sure to be at his side on the night of May 14th, comforting the Shah as he slipped away. On the morning of May 15th, 
Once news of the Shah's death had spread through Qazvin, Haydar decided he needed to take immediate action. Though Ismail was still imprisoned, hundreds of miles away, Haydar needed to consolidate his own power. He did so by striking at the center of Ismail's support. He detained Princess Perikhan Khanum in the palace. It was a dangerous moment for the princess. Haydar could have easily killed or imprisoned her for her disloyalty. After all, she had openly supported his brother. But Perikhan Khanum saw an out. Haydar needed support, and she could offer it to him. Alexander Begmunshi, another contemporary Safavid historian, wrote that Perikhan Khanum threw herself on the ground before Haydar, saying, quote, Women are foolish creatures. If in my stupidity and short-sightedness I have been guilty of any misdemeanor, I beg you to pardon me and spare my life. In that event, I will follow the path of obedience to you and will not deviate by so much as a hair's breadth from the court of conduct which is pleasing to your highness." End quote. Then she bent over and kissed her brother's feet. Laying it on a little thick, but effective, Moved by her words and recognizing the importance of her support, Haydar accepted Peri Khan Khanum's apology, on the condition that she secured the support of her brother, Suleiman Mizra, and her uncle, Samkal Sultan. Peri Khan Khanum agreed and said she needed to leave at once to convince her brother and uncle to join Haydar. Haydar granted her permission to go. Certain that he was now safe to proceed, Haydar placed his father's crown on his head and declared himself Shah. To back up his claim, he presented a document that named him successor. The document bore what looked like the royal seal, but opponents noted that the handwriting did not quite look like Tamasp's. It was a dramatic step towards assuming the throne, but it was a short-sighted one. Every night, the palace guards were selected from different tribes of the Kizilbash. This measure assured that no one tribe would have dominant presence within the palace. On May 15th, the night that Haydar made his immediate move, the guards were all from tribes that supported Ismail. Haydar might have been wearing the crown, but he was surrounded by enemies, ones who then refused to open the palace gates to let Haidar's supporters in or Haidar himself out. Another dangerous force was gathering outside the palace. These men, supporters of Ismail, possessed a secret tool that would soon change the balance of power, and it had been provided to them by the very woman who had just kissed her brother's feet in a show of loyalty. Unbeknownst to Haydar, as soon as Perikhan Khanum had gotten outside the palace gates, she had run to Ismail's supporters and presented them with a set of keys to the palace. Soon, the men stormed through the gates, calling for Haydar's blood. Haydar, hearing the cries, dressed in women's clothing and hid among a group of women leaving the palace. But he was quickly found out. Ismail's supporters captured Haydar and executed him. His severed head was thrown out of the palace for his supporters to see. He had not even been shot for one full day. With Haydar dead, Ismail had an easy path to victory. 
But he was still on the road to Kazvin at this point, and in the meantime, the work of the state had to continue. The various nobles and government officials needed someone to make decisions on administrative and financial issues. In other words, they needed someone to rule. And who better than the woman who had, in essence, determined the outcome of the succession crisis? For the next month and a half, while Ismail was working his way toward the capital, Peri Khan Khanum served as de facto regent, and her authority was unquestionable. Her position seemed secure. She was confident that her influence and power would only continue once Ismail arrived in Kazvin. After all, he owed her, didn't he? Ismail and his party came to the edge of Kazvin after 20 days of traveling, in late spring, 1576. But he did not enter the city immediately. Like many Safavid royals, he was a fervent believer in reading the signs of the stars, and he would only enter Kazvin once his astrologer told him that the time was right for a coronation. While he camped out, Peri Khan Khanum continued to serve as ruler, giving audiences to nobles who would meet first with the princess and then travel to Ismail's camp outside the city for an audience with the prince. Ismail's 20-year-long imprisonment had left him paranoid and distrustful. Though Peri Khan Khanum was responsible for his victory, Ismail did not fully believe in her loyalty. After all, she was the most beloved daughter of their father, the same father who had sent Ismail to prison, and his suspicions only deepened in his weeks spent on the outskirts of town as he watched his sister's influence grow. After more than a month as regent, Peri Khan Khanum had set up a court of sorts, replete with the same regal rituals and customs that her father's court had followed. Nobles and servants alike behaved with deference to the princess, accorded her respect, performed ceremonies on her behalf, and obeyed her decisions. Ismail, seeing all of this, was furious. The historian Alexander Begmunshi records that Ismail gathered all of the nobles around and berated them, quote, "'Have you not understood, my friends, that interference in matters of state by women is demeaning to the king's honor, and that for men to associate with women of the Safavid royal house is an abominable crime." End quote. This censure quickly shut down the nobles' practice of visiting Peri Khan Khanum. In fact, it shut down all practice of anyone visiting her. From that point on, she was kept in isolation in her home, with only royal guards for company. It was not only Peri Khan Khanum that Ismail was suspicious of. Early on in his reign, he became convinced that the only way to secure his grasp on the throne was to eliminate all competition, and he quickly set about doing so, mercilessly. On one day alone, he had six princes murdered. First was Prince Ibrahim, an artist, poet, and musician, who was strangled. His wife was so distraught by the death that she destroyed Ibrahim's entire library and precious art collection so that the Shah could not have his treasures. And she worked herself into such a frenzy while destroying her husband's possessions that she herself died later that month. Then came Prince Mohammed Hussein, 
who was first blinded and then put to death. Next was Prince Mahmud, who was thought dead after strangulation, but awoke as his corpse was being prepared for burial, and so then he was killed again. Then the Shah had Mahmud's infant son killed too. Two more princes were brought to the palace and put to death later that same day. Ismail's killing spree didn't end there. He ordered the deaths of nearly all remaining male members of the immediate royal family, Prince Badi al-Zaman and his royal son Bahram, and then Prince Hassan, son of Ismail's brother. By this point, only one prince who had been blinded but whose life had been spared and the already blind Muhammad Kodabanda survived. It's thought that Ismail was less concerned with Muhammad Kodabanda because he had gone blind long ago and because his remaining sons were still very young. Ismail perhaps also felt a sense of loyalty to his blind older brother since they shared the same mother. But neither motivation proved quite strong enough. Soon the Shah ordered Muhammad and his sons to be placed under house arrest, and it was rumored that Ismail was planning on having them put to death. But before that could happen, Ismail died suddenly on November 5, 1577. The Shah had been in good health. He had spent the night before in the company of his close confidant, Hassan Beg, wandering the streets of Kazvin together, smoking opium and eating sweets. The two men returned to Hassan Beg's room sometime in the early hours. In the morning, the Shah's attendants gathered outside the room, waiting for Ismail to awaken and begin his day. But by late morning, there was still no sign of him. Too frightened to disturb the Shah, the servants hovered nervously around the door until noon, at which point a physician was summoned. When the physician called through the door, Hassan Beg replied, as Munchi tells it, quote, I cannot move to open the door. Open the door from the outside in whatever way you can and come in, for an astonishing event has occurred." Unquote. What was found when the door was finally opened was indeed astonishing. Hassan Beg was immobilized with no sensation in his lower half, and he had a stuttering voice. The Shah himself was motionless. He was already dead. Hassan Beg haltingly recounted the events of the night. Returning from their walk, the Shah requested that his box of herbal medicines be brought to him. When the box arrived, Hassan Beg noticed that it was not sealed as it usually was, and he pointed it out to Ismail, who shook off his concerns. The Shah took some medicine and convinced Hassan to as well, though his companion took less than he had. In the morning, when Hassan woke, he found himself unable to move his legs. Ismail was unable to speak. He stopped moving his arms, Hassan recounted, but after a while he ceased to move and his breathing stopped. As soon as the news of the strange circumstances of Ismail's death emerged, everyone seemed to have a theory. Some thought it was a simple matter of overconsumption. Ismail was known to use excessive amounts of opium and eat until he was ill. Others thought it was a severe recurrence of an occasional stomach problem that the Shah suffered. But more cynical observers pointed to poison, and when court physicians examined the Shah's body, they found symptoms that seemed to be signs of poisoning. 
Given Ismail's wholesale execution of nearly all of his close male relatives, he had no shortage of enemies. But there was one name that seemed to come up most often in the discussions of suspects, the name of a family member who had been betrayed by Ismail, who had given him the throne and been rewarded with banishment. The princess, Peri Khan Khanum. Contemporaries and some historians alike have contended that Peri Khan Khanum, furious at Ismail's treatment of her, had indeed conspired with maidservants in Ismail's household to poison him. We'll never know for sure exactly who or what caused the death of Shah Ismail II in November of 1577, but we do know what happened next. Whether or not Peri Khan Khanum was responsible for the death of Ismail, she played the circumstances to her advantage. When a group of nobles approached her, asking her to take the throne, she demurred, saying that it would be improper, given that her older brother Muhammad still lived, a statement no doubt influenced by her understanding that society at large at the time would be hesitant about a woman in power. But even nobles who were uncomfortable with the idea of a woman formally taking the throne recognized the princess's power. After the leaders of the various tribes and political alliances met to discuss the next shah, they went to Peri Khan Khanum's house to get her final approval on their proposal. Their proposal was to put Muhammad Kodabanda on the throne. It was a proposal that suited Peri Khan Khanum well. Mohammed Kodabanda was known to pursue pleasure more than political power. With a weak-willed and not particularly politically-minded man on the throne, Peri Khan Khanum thought, she could rule in the shadows. But what she hadn't counted on was another player in the equation, someone who, like Peri Khan Khanum, had been overlooked on account of her sex, but who was keenly ambitious and perhaps just as clever as the princess herself. It was Mohammed Kudbanda's wife, Khair al-Nisa Begum. Khair al-Nisa Begum was born in Mazandaran, a province in the north of the empire, on the southern shores of the Caspian Sea. Born to a ruler of the province, her childhood was likely a luxurious one, but the privilege didn't last. In 1565, her cousin killed her father, and Khair al-Nisa Begum was forced to flee. She took refuge with the Safavid court, and though she was quickly swept up in the activities of the court, her desire for revenge against her cousin never left her. She was eventually married to Muhammad Kodabanda, the son of the Shah, Tamas I. Given Muhammad Kodabanda's blindness, the family had determined that he would never take the throne. And so their family ended up living a relatively low-profile life in the city of Shiraz, where Muhammad nominally served as governor, spending most of his time with a group of artists and poets. But with his brother Ismail's death, their family status rose meteorically. As the court awaited the arrival of their new shah, Peri Khan Khanum assumed the same role of unofficial regent, that she had between the death of Haydar and the coronation of Ismail. This period of control would last this time for nearly three months. Her most notable accomplishment during this time was the liberation of a large number of political prisoners, including those jailed for supporting Haydar. 
But even as Perichanchanum maintained order in the empire, trouble was brewing within the royal family. It began when Ismail's former vizier, or political advisor, rode out to Shiraz to warn Muhammad Kodabanda and his wife of Peri Khan Khanum's ambitions. Quote, as long as Peri Khan Khanum was mistress in the palace and controlled affairs of the state, when she records the vizier saying, the Shah would possess nothing but the title of king and his wife would not be admitted to the harem. The royal couple made it clear that they would not tolerate any usurpation. When news of this declaration made it back to Peri Khan Khanum, she and her supporters began to take actions to solidify her power. Guards patrolled the palace, ready to take on any threat to the princess. In response, the vizier sent guards of his own to the state treasury, which was under Peri Khan Khanum's control at that point. Tensions mounted and several skirmishes ensued between the supporters of Peri Khan Khanum and those of Muhammad Kodabanda and Khair al-Nisa Begum. Peri Khan Khanum's treatment of the couple upon their arrival in Kazvin did nothing to help matters. As Muhammad and his wife rode up to the city on February 9, 1578, Peri Khan Khanum came out to greet them in an opulent litter, surrounded by a huge crowd of supporters. It was a bold statement of authority, and one that certainly rankled the already insecure royal incomers. One story, recounted by Munchi, alleges that Peri Khan Khanum snubbed the future empress. Though Khair al-Nisa Begum kissed Peri Khan Khanum's hand, the princess refused to reciprocate with any gesture of respect. Despite this tension, Peri Khan Khanum and her brother Muhammad were able to conduct a cordial meeting in which they mourned the loss of their father, Shah Tamas, and the deaths of their male relatives at the hands of Shah Ismail. But this conversation was not enough to fix the rupture growing in the family. Peri Khan Khanum was too powerful, and her very existence was a threat to the power of Muhammad Kodabanda and his wife, Khair al-Nisa Begum. Two days later, Muhammad Kodabanda entered the palace in Kazvin and officially took the throne, becoming Shah of the Safavid Empire. All of the nobles were in attendance to watch his ascension, including Peri Khan Khanum. When the ceremony ended, Peri Khan Khanum boarded her litter and set off for her home, surrounded by attendants. The roads of Kazvin were crowded with the city's citizens, out in droves to celebrate the new Shah, and so the princess's attendants turned to re-enter the palace grounds, planning to cut through the harem gardens to reach Peri Khan Khanum's house more quickly. But as the party neared her home, they were intercepted by a group of men who attempted to seize the litter. Pari Khan Khanum's attendants fought back. Inside the litter, the princess was thrown back and forth as the two groups battled for control. Peace only came when the attackers revealed that they were acting on the orders of the Shah, and Pari Khan Khanum, realizing what was happening, surrendered herself. In a particularly cruel twist, she saw that the leader of the group was none other than her old tutor and guardian, Kali Khan. He had been promised Peri Khan Khanum's entire estate, 
in exchange for orchestrating her death. Peri Khan Khanum was taken to Khalil Khan's house and kept as a prisoner. Later that evening, a group of Khalil Khan's men entered the room and strangled the princess to death. She was 29 years old. In the centuries since her death, Peri Khan Khanum's legacy has been debated by historians. Some see her as a powerful leader, others as a conniving backstabber. The truth, as always, is somewhere probably in the middle and definitely more complicated. But her influence and power between 1576 and 1578 are undeniable. As the historian Shoreh Gosorki put it in her definitive work on the princess, quote, It is time to grant recognition to such Safavid women as Peri Khan Khanum, who took leadership roles and entered the forbidden and formidable realm of power and intrigue at the court. That's the story of Pari Khan Khanum. To learn more about the fate of the woman who helped organize her downfall, Khair al-Nisa Begum, listen after a quick commercial break. The weather is getting warmer, so it is time to say goodbye to your jackets and heavy sweaters. Hello to shorts and tees. If you are anything like me, you have this urge around this time of year to completely overhaul your wardrobe. But ideally, you want to do that without spending a fortune. Luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. They have these amazing European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, timeless 14-karat gold jewelry, and honestly, my new favorite pair of summer sunglasses I got from Quince. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com noble for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash noble to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince dot com slash noble. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S., that's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Once Peri Khan Khanum was dead, Khair al-Nisa Begum, the new empress, became the real power behind the throne. 
Like other Safavid empresses, she would eventually become known as Mad i Ulya, which translates as Sublime Cradle or the Highest Ranking Cradle. It's as Mad i Ulya that she's most commonly referred to today. As Empress, Mad i Ulya built out her network of influence, appointing family members and friends to important positions, gathering information, and dictating political and military strategy. Even as she worked to strengthen the Safavid Empire, she thought constantly of her home province of Mazadaran, which was now ruled by the son of the man who had killed her father. This man, Mizra Khan, had come to court when Madiulia and Muhammad Kodabanda first ascended to the throne to seek forgiveness for his father's actions and get confirmation of his position as governor. Madiulia grudgingly granted both. But her forgiveness was only a facade. Sometime later, she appointed a new governor, an uncle of hers, and declared Mirza Khan's authority to be illegitimate. Mirza Khan, understanding the potentially deadly implications of this move, holed up in the fortress of Firja to try to protect himself. But even a fortress was no match for Mariolia's power. She sent a number of troops to the fort, determined to starve Mirza Khan out. But when the troops arrived at the fortress, they realized that the siege would be a costly one, and so their commanding officer decided to try to negotiate. After prolonged negotiations, Mirza Khan agreed to leave the fort on the condition that the officers present, all of whom held prominent positions at court, would help him plead his case to Mariolia. When Madiulia learned of the deal, she was furious, since she certainly intended to harm Mirza Khan, and now she would have to work against her own men to do it. As the group transporting Mirza Khan made their way to Kazvin, Madiulia sent out another group of warriors with orders to capture Mirza Khan and kill him. When this second group met up with the first, the officers who had sworn to protect Mirza Khan on the terms of the surrender, were reluctant to hand him over. But eventually they did so, fearful of disobeying a royal order, and also believing that the men wouldn't actually kill the prisoner. They were wrong. Later that night, the second group killed Mirza Khan. The officers present were furious, and though they had been loyal to Mariulia, their loyalty began to waver after what they saw as a betrayal. The assassination was the beginning of the end for Mariulia. It was not the only factor, of course. She made a number of bold moves, some of which were politically imprudent, and it additionally cannot be denied that there was some deep resentment among tribal leaders towards taking orders from a woman. In mid-1579, a group of Kizilbash leaders issued a shocking threat against the empress to the emperor, revealing the extent of their anger. It read, in part, quote, Your Majesty knows well that women are notoriously lacking in intelligence, weak in judgment, and extremely obstinate. Mariolia's power and influence in the government of the realm is objectionable to all the Kizilbash tribes. If she is not removed from power, in all probability, revolt will occur that will be to the detriment of both religion and the state. Removed from power in this case, meant killed. Shah Muhammad Kodabanda had no interest in revolt. 
but he also had no interest in executing his wife. He offered two solutions. Either he would send his wife away from Kazvin, exiling her from the workings of court, or he himself would abdicate and allow the Kizilbash to choose a new Shah. Madelulia provided a more fiery rebuke, declaring that she would never back down, even if it would cost her her life. Ultimately, it did. On July 26, 1579, only 18 months after the death of Peri Khan Khanum, Mariulia was strangled to death in the palace grounds by a number of Kizilbash warriors, who also killed her elderly mother who was present. Without Mariulia's guiding hand, Mohammed Kodabanda's reign quickly fell into disarray. Four years later, Kizilbash leaders executed his vizier, the man who had warned Muhammad and his wife about Peri Khan Khanum's power rise five years earlier. In 1587, several Kizibash tribes initiated full-fledged coups, which ultimately succeeded in October of that year. Eventually, Muhammad Kodabanda was replaced by one of his sons, a man who, breaking the family bad luck streak, would go down in history as the most successful Safavid ruler, the Shah who would become known as Abbas the Great. Noble Blood is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Noble Blood is hosted by me, Dana Schwartz. Additional writing and researching done by Hannah Johnston, Hannah Zwick, Mira Hayward, Courtney Sender, and Lori Goodman. The show is produced by Rima Ilkayali, with supervising producer Josh Thane, and executive producers Aaron Mankey, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists, like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.